How do you feel that or do you feel that the landscape is changing at all with respect to more investors focusing on multicultural and female entrepreneurs? When I think about some of the things that venture capitalists look at as, you know, what does it take to start a company? And in my view, they it's they're a little lazy about it, I'll be honest, right? Let me get an engineer because somehow that's a box check. Let me make sure they come from Stanford or Harvard. And quite frankly, we've had great luck with Caucasian males. And they keep churning and churning and churning. They don't stop to ask themselves, right? If this was such a great model, would 90% of the companies you invest in fail? Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris. This season, we're speaking with entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled and sold their companies with a particular focus on their exits. In this episode, I'm joined by Juanita Lott, the founder of the enterprise security firm Bridgestream Inc. Through hard work, late nights, and a keen sense of business, Juanita navigated her way through the post-dot-com era before selling Bridgestream to Oracle for a reported $30 million. Juanita shares with us how founders can strategically position themselves to retain control of their companies, and she also outlines a few of the unique challenges people of color face when considering an exit. Finally, Juanita offers advice and encouragement to other non-traditional entrepreneurs who are considering starting their own company. Come on and join me for the ride. Juanita, what a pleasure to have you here today. Let's jump right into it. In 2007, you sold your company, Bridgestream, to Oracle for over $30 million. Let's take you back to that moment. How were you feeling when you signed the dotted line and what was going through your mind? I think there were a couple of things, right? The first, and I think the most important, was a huge sense of validation. I think that's the word I would use. There were so many messages that said, you didn't belong, Mm -hmm. right? When everything around you, at every step of that journey, the message of, so are you legitimate, right? Do you belong here? Is your business truly a Silicon Valley opportunity, right? Why you? And so at some point you think, is this real? Am I really going to make this happen? So the validation that comes from the fact that you were able to do what 90% of any of their portfolios were not able to do. Most entrepreneurs that are invested in don't have an outcome, any outcome. So to be able to see that we got there and we had an exit, That's right. I was excited, I was proud, but most of all, I felt I belong here. Yeah. The mm-hmm. second thought was a sense of loss. Hmm. I don't think you put in the kind of effort you have to put in to build a business from an idea where you are not giving 200% of yourself 24-7. And then at some point say, here, I'll let someone else take it forward from there. There is a part of you that it's like losing a child. Uh, I know it's the right thing to do. As a CEO, and you look at all of the business reasons that tell you that that's the right decision to Mm -hmm. make, 
you still have this pit of the stomach feeling that, you know, this is going to be tough to let go. Mm-hmm. It has defined you for seven years. Yes. So what was Bridge Dream? The way to think about it is most large companies have dozens of applications they use to run their businesses that are in front of the customers, their employees, their suppliers. Bridgestream provided a security layer that managed who had access on an application-by-application basis. In healthcare, only the doctors that are helping you see your record. Not all doctors should, you know, so right. it gets unless down to... Unless you give the permission. Unless you, That's why we all diff- sign that little thing. There you ah. go. There you go. So they call it role-based access control, but we had one of the best solutions for granular management of data security as it relates to applications. Well, let's talk about that framework, though. Okay. How did you walk through the decision that it was the right call mm-hmm. to sell at that point when you clearly you already had market validation, you had mm-hmm. customer validation, mm-hmm. you were making money? So how did you arrive at the decision? Because I think that's the okay. playbook point. Okay. So many entrepreneurs have a hard time trying to decide, well, if I'm, I'm cooking with gas now, should I sell now or should I you know, okay. keep going? Several reasons. These are the things that were not just kind of going through my thinking, but our board, right, our investors. We'd been talking about defining what exit looked like. We'd been having that conversation for a good year. And the things we were considering were, are we a company that's selling direct or are we selling in some other model, in this case a partnership, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that was important for us is our product was a piece of a larger enterprise software puzzle. Mm -hmm. Was there a market for this technology that stood apart from being a partner with the guys who owned all the other pieces of that stack? So our future was by definition tied to working very closely with those companies, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so when we asked the question, is it possible we can be an independent software company? The answer was probably maybe, but more likely, mm-hmm. you're going to be a partner sale with the likes of you know the big players right mm-hmm. in the industry. So that was the first piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So we got to the point where we realized we were not going to probably run as fast as we might like to run if we were independent because we're selling as partner to the oracles, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. so that was a part of our thinking. The other thing was uh, we were sitting at a time, you remember this is 2007-ish, where the IPO market, what market, Mm -hmm. right? There was no real Mm -hmm. IPO opportunity. It had been volatile, as I recall, 2006, 2007. It existed, but it was volatile. Exactly, Carla. And you add to that the real push for our product for most companies was uh, in the healthcare business, where more uh, healthcare companies were trying to make sure they could meet the data security bar that was being set by those regulations. Mm -hmm. So the timing of why we mattered was now, Mm -hmm. right? And you know how quickly those issues ebb and flow, and, and our opportunity window, therefore, felt like it was more you know, short-term versus long-term. And so both of those things were saying, you know, um, we need to take a really hard look at where we are, given that this is one of the ways we get into these big deals. It's Mm -hmm. why the oracles and these other guys want to do business with us, because they can't solve this piece of data security 
to help their customers check off, yes, I can cover myself from a HIPAA standpoint or whatever. Mm -hmm. So our timing was one issue. The markets were another. And (laughs) for most entrepreneurs, uh, you know, you can appreciate our burn rate was pretty, pretty solid, Mm -hmm. right? We knew that we had X months of runway on our current investment Mm -hmm. that quite likely if we took the longer view, we had to come up with an even broader strategy with regard to funding. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, our investors were trying to figure out, you know, what's our appetite? Mm -hmm. This is a very important playbook point, and I think this is important for entrepreneurs to understand. The investors are not there in perpetuity. So when you start raising institutional capital, i.e. venture capital dollars, they're going to be focused on and help you stay focused on the exit strategy. So they're always revisiting that, I think, is playbook point number one. Very good. So you ought to be thinking that mm-hmm. way. Exactly. Okay. And, okay. and the other piece of that with respect to our investors is they had had invested to a certain point in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the environment that surrounds Which this company. Critical. This particular venture firm had taken the risk on investing in an African-American woman. We put a certain amount of our capital on the table saying, we're going to take this amount of risk, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, from my perspective, one of the factors that played into this is, are we able or willing to double down further mm-hmm versus we can look at getting a, what, a three to five X return now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert, you know, in this regard, but I know that when I think about some of the VCs I've worked with, uh, when they look across their portfolio, they assume that 80 or 90% of them are not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. No exit. We invested. We tried. They kind of move on. Then there's this group of companies that kind of look like we did. They can return to their limiteds three or four X. That looks pretty good. In private equity, that that'd be a good, you know, mm-hmm. that'd be good news, right? Versus an IPO, the true big hits are mm-hmm. a small fraction of the total portfolio. So they had, I'm sure, discussions around everything else in their portfolio where they needed to look at their return on investment. And this is one that can add three to four X. And to your point, another point around the markets, remember this was 2007. The dot-com bubble had burst in 2000, and 2001, it was just a bloodbath Mm -hmm. on all things dot-com, on all things software that had come public. Absolutely. And so no one really knew where and when the true appetite for technology companies were coming back. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's another playbook point is to think about if today we had to make an exit, what does the market environment look like? In my opinion, yes. One of the questions I was going to ask you is that we have not done the research on this yet, but I'm starting to feel in my gut that women and folks of color exit a little bit earlier strategically than those who don't look like them because the journey of raising the capital is so tough. So when they're faced with the decision, do I sell now for eight or nine figures or do I raise this series C and beyond and roll that dice that because the journey was so hard at the pre-seed and the A and the B, they just say, ah, no. And I'll add another factor too. There comes a point, if you really are growing a software company, I believe that it's a combination of the 
venture capitalists deciding to double down. But the other thing that we missed, and still I think to this day would not have locked down, is you need this incredible set of contacts in the industry Mm -hmm. to help you go from early stage, interesting business to really drawing the hockey stick that gets you to the point any of those other options are going to happen. Ah. And one of the things we don't have, and I say that as an African-American woman, even if I have investors who would have rolled those dice, the question is, do I have enough of that relationship built with the key kingmakers in the industry? Mm -hmm. And, And that it's absolutely critical to seeing a substantially different outcome. Now, I'm just speaking in my, you know, about technology. I'm just speaking about software because I don't know about any other business. But I do know when I look at the big players in my industry, that that has been another critical piece of the puzzle. And I question whether or not, as an African-American woman, even if I got the check, Mm -hmm. I could quickly create that series of relationships. Yes, understood. So you got a number that made sense to your investors, that made sense to you. It was the right time in the market. It was the right partner. Let's talk about how you got to the partner, because part of the challenge that entrepreneurs get is getting exposure to the right potential buyers. Okay. So how how did you get exposure to Oracle? Were there other people that were knocking on the door so that you could have a little bit of an auction? But how did you get there? Okay. Well, I think our first introduction to Oracle was uh, well before we started doing business with them when they were holding their Oracle seminars on, you know, this particular technology. And so we're in the audience. We're listening, mm-hmm. right? We're figuring out who it is we want to talk to post-presentation so that we can start pitching what we're doing. And we walk up probably cold, call it a cold meeting to say, we heard what you had to say. Sounds interesting. We're doing something that you need to look at. Will you take the meeting? Mm-hmm. It starts that early. Wow. Right? And we at least open the door a little bit. And that's just about paying attention, hitting the pavement. And we were able to kind of get their attention early. About the time we were doing that, we also were getting uh, having a meeting with Gartner Group, taking them to dinner, showing them what we had, answering their questions, explaining why we thought we were a necessary piece of the puzzle. And we got a really good right up after that. So we had the ability to go into that meeting and present to what probably could have been a very skeptical audience of, I'd say, VP director level guys who happened to run this area of software for Oracle and say, good to meet you. This is what we do. And you get the skept, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, almost everywhere we went, we got the prove to me, why are you here? (laughs) Look, right? So you're a woman, you're not an engineer, you're a black woman. But we were able to kind of get them past that. So you have to get really good at what you're thinking is, I see your your reluctance. Let me kind of put this aside and get you to focus on the things that really matter to Mm -hmm. you. Let me let you know that I understand your business. I understand your business. why you might need me. The other thing we were able to say is, you know, your customer 
that does that financial institution that just spent two years and, I don't know, seven, eight figures with this other company to solve this problem, and it just crashed and burned. We know it crashed and burned because they just hired us to fix it. Mm -hmm. So would you like to talk to us about what we do? We'd love to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. But you had to come in with more than PowerPoint. Right. There was no way we would have made progress with any of those partners unless we had already validated what we did, why it mattered. If they can see that you can solve what is most important to them, Mm -hmm. that's the point at which they really don't care if you're a female, Mm -hmm. African-American CEO. What they want to know, does it work? Mm -hmm. And if you're the best game in town... You can get that job. So that's how we met Oracle. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, you had to be one of the most unlikely people. That was the other issue. Because even if they could accept you as a woman and a woman of color walking in, they look at the resume, they look at the bio, and they see they have BA in liberal arts at and business administration from UC Davis and an MA from Mills College, which has absolutely nothing to do with technology. You are not an engineer. You are not eating and sleeping and breathing tech, tech, tech since you were 14 years old. So talk to us about how Bridgestream was created. Okay. Um, The one thing to remember is I had spent over 10 years at the C-suite level as an executive in software as the chief human resources officer. So I dealt with all of the people issues. Mm -hmm. I dealt with all of the changes that needed to happen to take what was a startup to an over a billion dollar software company at the time. So your job was the people. My job was the people. But I understood the business because from my perspective, you can't solve for one without understanding the other. The second thing about that experience and that background is I was sitting front and center as the technology that underpins enterprise software was about to go through another change in the way the architecture was structured. But by sitting in that room, you know, year over year and kind of hearing and and knowing that that was happening, I got an understanding of what it would enable that wasn't possible before. Mm -hmm. And so I convinced myself (laughs) that I didn't need to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. I needed to understand how to build it, which is kind of product management. That is probably what you would call me. Right. I knew how it needed to work. I knew how the new technology was going to make it possible. So I sat with a couple of very interesting engineers, and I said, this is what I think we could do. It needs to work this way. If we do it right, I think there's a a there there, you Mm -hmm. know. They were excited about the possibility. And, you know, I couldn't think of a reason not to do it. So why would they come with you? Knowing that you weren't one of them. I had a long-standing relationship and had a fairly good reputation with engineers. And I think Hmm. one of the other things I had going is I was always a pretty good manager leader, right? And I think that even to this day, one of the things that was important to this coming together was being able to see how you need to take all of these components and bring them together so you can build an organization, right, mm-hmm. that can uh, execute. You know, that's why when, when I look at some of the things that venture capitalists look at as, you know, what does it take to start a company? And in my view, they t- it's, 
they're a little lazy about it. I'll be honest, right? Let me get an engineer because somehow that's a box check. Let me make sure they come from Stanford or Harvard because, you know, it worked five years ago. It's got to, you know, and quite, quite frankly, we've had great luck with Caucasian males. So let's just keep, and they keep churning and churning and churning. They don't stop to ask themselves, right? If this was such a great model, would 90% of the companies you invest in fail? Hmm. So I was willing to take the risk, I guess is the way to look at it, Carla, to say there's probably some other models that could also work. Yes. Because I don't want to take anything away from the very bright people that go to these great schools and build amazing tech. You know, all of that's true. But that doesn't preclude other models also being the right model to grow a business. Mm-hmm. That's why when you asked me what was my first re- reaction, it was validation. Mm-hmm. That's why it was validation, because I wanted to prove that there was room for other things. You know, Not that it was better than, but there was room, room. for other models that could be successful, and I thought I could be one of those well, people. You certainly did that. You have the team. You have people that are with you that are excited about you, about your leadership, about your idea. They believe they can help get it done. Now, let's talk about the journey to raise the money. Mm because that's really where the rubber meets the road. So let's talk about your first fundraising experience. How'd you get that done? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Okay. So my fundraising probably should be looked at in two two separate buckets, right? That first series of funds that I raised were angel funds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got to those- Friends and family? True angels. Okay. They became friends. Okay. (laughs) And I asked that question because All the research shows that women and people of color don't often have, quote, friends and family, that true first round Mm -hmm. to actually help them get on their way. So you had true angel, which is the next round. I had, So how did you figure out who, who to approach? Before I started even thinking about raising funding, I went to everyone I knew in the industry, everyone I worked with at the board level and even within my own organization, I went to anyone they would refer me to who could help, and I sat down and said, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And half of them, uh, no, you shouldn't do it right. You know, you're not white male. But many of them would say, yes, I think you've got something. This is how I can help. Some of the help was introducing me to people who were angels with deep pockets to say, I know her. I've talked to her. She's got something. You may want to talk to her, too. And by virtue of getting those referrals, I was getting checks from some large software company executives who had built amazing companies but wanted to see whether there was a there there. Mm-hmm. And so angels were starting to write money because they thought I had a something. Yeah, you leveraged yeah. the network. Leveraged there. the network. Mm-hmm. And so I did a ton of that. I probably did a year of that before I even thought about pulling a team together and getting started. Right. Wow. I was asking am I right or have I just lost my mind, mm-hmm. right? Should I do this? And I was asking people who would tell me honestly. Yes. And I asked a number of members of my board, and what I found was, and I really believe this, you never kind of assume that a person, by virtue of their status, will not try to help you, mm-hmm. right, even if they don't have an existing relationship. I went to a person who was running one of the largest technology law firms, you know, same pitch. You know, you're, they sat on my board and said, you know, I think I want to do this. What do you think? Um, they did my incorporation. 
free legal work. They also connected me with a partner who worked with me when on, you know, call me when you need me kind of basis. To me, def- worth more than money. Absolutely. Right? Another meeting that I had where I was introduced to a guy, this was an African-American guy, one of the early VPs of software at Oracle. He ended up starting one of the first little incubators for African-American startups. He bought an old bank building in downtown Oakland. And we worked there, grew there, rent-free for the first, I don't know how many years, two, three years we were getting started. All this time, I am knocking on the doors of venture capital. Mm-hmm. If I could get in there, I was pitching. I pitched almost everybody yeah. that was in the space and, and I thought could invest and got very little traction early on from them, very little. But eventually, we got the product to the point and still on angel funding where we got this first big sale. So we had a first proof of concept that was huge, we had major industry support. We had all of that done before the first true venture check was written. Yes. And I would suggest that had I not been an African-American woman, I think I would have gotten venture funding before I could remove all of the risk, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so the venture investment ah. really came in at a point when if they didn't want to invest, you know, then why are you in the business of enterprise soft? I mean, we were clearly... We'd kind of removed a lot of the the, the concern. At so that you point. had significantly de-risked the business by I the time so. you got the first VC money. In my opinion, yes. How do you think the experience of someone who didn't look like you, say the white male, to use your words, what might they have had to do okay. to have access? I think any entrepreneur needs to be able to show as much as they can of what it is they want to build and how it works and so on. I do believe, however that there are areas where an investor will make an assumption or take a, a risk with you because they understand what you believe you can do. That is often, let us work with you to make it happen. They were actually saying to me, help me understand the problem. Okay, now show me. Mm-hmm. That you've solved it. Mm-hmm. I need to see it and touch it, right? I think so. That's it goes back to that old saying that men are hired on potential and women are hired on performance. I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> you Carla. can have it, girl. I like that. That's in. That's in a nutshell. I think that's the way I'd look at it. So, Juanita, we started a a little bit of a tradition on access and opportunity. It's called a lightning round, and it's a fun way for our listeners to get to know you as a person. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, rapid fire, and you answer in three words or less. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I'm ready. Favorite book or magazine? (sighs) Only the paranoid survive. Oh. Andy Grove. City or countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. Your experience as an entrepreneur or as an investor? Entrepreneur. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Text or phone call? Text. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ah. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Change. Outstanding. Well, Juanita, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Access and Opportunity. In two weeks, we sit down with the hyper-successful serial entrepreneur and founder of BET, Bob Johnson. This is an episode you won't want to miss. We'll see you then.